Section 6 of Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chris Caron. Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Part 2. Section 6, Chapters 25 through 29. Chapter 25. I had a tennis court in my castle, from which I drew considerable profit. The building also contained some little dwellings inhabited by different sorts of men, among whom was a printer of books of much excellence in his own trade. Nearly the whole of his premises lay inside the castle, and he was the man who printed Messer Gudo's first fine book on medicine. Wanting to make use of his lodging, I turned him out, but now without some trouble. There was also a manufacturer of salpetre, and when I wished to assign his apartments to some of my German workmen, the fellow refused to leave the place. I asked him over and over again in gentle terms to give me up my rooms, because I wanted to employ them for my workpeople in the service of the king. The more moderately I spoke, the more arrogantly did the brute reply, till at last I gave him three days' notice to quit. He laughed me in the face, and said that he would begin to think of it at the end of three years. I had not then learned that he was under the protection of Madame de Tampes, but had it not been that the terms on which I stood toward that lady made me a little more circumspect that I was wont to be. I should have outsted him at once. Now, however, I thought it best to keep my temper for three days. When the term was over, I said nothing, but took Germans, Italians, and Frenchmen, bearing arms as many hand-laborers whom I had in my employ, and in a short while guttered all his house and flung his property outside my castle. I resorted to these somewhat rigorous measures, because he had told me that no Italian whom he knew of had the power of spirit to remove one ring of iron from its place in his house. Well, after the deed was done, he came to find me, and I said to him, I am the least of all Italians in Italy, and yet I have done nothing to you in comparison with what I have the heart to do, and will do if you utter a single further word. Adding other terms of menace and abuse, the man, dumbfounded and affrighted, got his furniture together as well as he was able. Then he ran off to Madame de Tampes and painted a picture of me, like the very fiend. She, being my great enemy, painted my portrait, still blacker to the king, with all her greater eloquence, and all her greater weight of influence. As I was afterwards informed, his majesty twice showed signs of irritation, and was minded to use me roughly. But Henry the Dauphin, his son, now king of France, who had received some affronts from that imperious woman, together with the queen of Navarre, sister to King Francis, espoused my cause so cleverly that he passed the matter over with a laugh. So with God's assistance I escaped from a great danger. Chapter 26 I had to deal in like manner with another fellow, but I did not ruin his house. I only threw all his furniture out of doors. This time Madame de Tampes had the insolence to tell the king, I believe that devil will sack Paris one of these days. 
The king answered with some anger that I was only quite right to defend myself from the low rabble who put obstacles in the way of my serving him. The rage of this vindictive woman kept continually on the increase. She sent for a painter who was established at Fontainebleau, where the king resided nearly all this time. The painter was an Italian and a Bologna, known then as Il Bologna, his right name, however, was Francesco Primaticio, Madame de Tampis, advised him to beg that commission for the fountain which his majesty had given me, adding that she would support him with all her ability, and upon this they agreed. Bologna was in an ecstasy of happiness, and thought himself sure of the affair, although such things were not in this line of art. He was, however, an excellent master of design, and had collected round him a troop of workpeople, formed in the school of Rosso, our Florentine painter, who was undoubtedly an artist of extraordinary merit. His own best qualities, indeed, were derived from the admirable manner of Rosso, who by this time had died. These ingenious arguments, and the weighty influence of Madame de Etampes, prevailed with the king, for they kept hammering at him night and day. Madame at one time, and Bologna at another, what worked most upon his mind was that both of them combined to speak as follows. How is it possible, sacred majesty, that Benvenuto should accomplish the twelve silver statues, which you want? He has not finished one of them yet. If you employ him on so great an undertaking, you will of necessity deprive yourself of those other things on which your heart is set. A hundred of the ablest craftsmen could not complete so many great works as this one able man has taken in hand to do. One can see clearly that he has a passion for labor. But this ardent temper will be the cause of your majesty's losing both him and his masterpieces at the same moment. By insinuating these and other suggestions of the same sort a favorable opportunity, the king consented to their petition and yet Bologna had at this time produced neither designs nor models for the fountain. Chapter 27 It happened that just as this period an action was brought against me, in Paris by the second lodger, I had outstead from my castle, who pretended that, on that occasion, I had stolen a large quantity of his effects. This lawsuit tormented me beyond measure, and took up so much of my time, that I often thought of decamping in despair from the country. Now the French are in the habit of making such capital out of any action they commence against a foreigner, or against such persons as they notice to be indolent in litigation. No sooner do they observe that they are getting some advantage in the suit than they find the means to sell it. Some have been known to give a lawsuit in dowry with their daughters to men who make a business out of such transactions. They have another ugly custom, which is that the Normans, nearly all of them, traffic in false evidence, so that the men who buy up lawsuits engage at once the services of four or six of these false witnesses. According to their need, their adversary, if he neglect to produce as many on the other side, being perhaps unacquainted with the custom, is certain to have the verdict given against him. All this happened in my case, and thinking it a most disgraceful breach of justice, 
I made my appearance in the great hall of Paris to defend my right. There I saw a judge, lieutenant for the king in civil causes, enthroned upon a high tribunal. He was tall, stout, and fat, and of an extremely severe countenance. All round him, on each side, stood a crowd of solicitors and advocates, ranged upon the right hand and the left. Others were coming, one by one, to explain their several causes to the judge. From time to time, too, I noticed that the attorney at the side of the tribunal talked all at once, and much administration was roused in me by that extraordinary man, the very image of Pluto, who listened with marked attention, first to one and then to the other, answering each with learning and sagacity. I have always delighted in watching and experiencing every kind of skill, so I would not have lost this spectacle for much. It happened that the hall being very large and filled with a multitude of folk, they were strict in excluding every one who had no business there, and kept the door shut with a guard to hold it. Sometimes the guardian, in his effort to prevent the entrance of some improper person, interrupted the judge by the great noise he made, and the judge in anger turned to chide him. This happened frequently, so that my attention was directed to the fact, on one occasion, when two gentlemen were pushing their way in as spectators, and the porter was opposing them with violence. The judge raised his voice and spoke the following words precisely as I heard them. Keep peace, Satan, be gone, and hold your tongue. Those words in the French tongue sound as follows. Fe fe Satan, fe fe al fe. Now I had learned the French tongue well. And on hearing this sentence, the meaning of that phrase used by Dante came into my memory when he and his master Virgil entered the doors of hell. Dante and the painter Giotto worked together in France, and particularly in the city of Paris, where, owing to the circumstances, I have just described the Hall of Justice may be truly called a hell. Dante, then, who also understood French, well made use of the phrase in question, and it has struck me as a singular that this interpretation has never been put upon the passage. Indeed, it confirms my opinion that the commentators make him say things which never came into his head. Chapter 28 Well, then, to return to my affairs, when certain decisions of the court were sent me by those lawyers, and I perceived that my cause had been unjustly lost, I had recourse for my defense to a great dagger, which I carried, for I have always taken pleasure in keeping fine weapons. The first man I attacked was the plaintiff, who had sued me, and one evening I wounded him in the legs and arms so severely, taking care, however, not to kill him, that I deprived him of the use of both his legs. Then I sought out the other fellow who had brought the suit, and used him also in such wise that he'd dropped it. Returning thanks to God for this and every other dispensation, and hoping to be left a while without worries, I bade the young men of my household, especially the Italians, for God's sake to attend each diligently to the work I set him, and to help me till such time as I could finish the things I had in hand. I thought they might soon be completed, and then I meant to return to Italy, being no longer able to put up the rogueries of those Frenchmen. The good king, too, if he once grew angry, he might bring me into mischief for many of my acts in self-defense. I will describe who these Italians were. The first and the one I like best was Ascanio from Talgasso in the kingdom of Naples. 
the second was pagolo a roman of such humble origin that he did now know his own father these were the two men who had been with me in rome and whom i had taken with me on the journey another roman had also come on purpose to enter my service he too bore the name of pagolo and was the son of a poor nobleman of the family of the macaroni he had small acquirements in our art but was excellent and courageous swordsman i had another from ferrera called bartolomeo chiosia there was also another from florence named pagolo messieri his brother nicknamed il gatta was a clever clerk but had spent too much money in managing the property of tommaso gudagini a very wealthy merchant this gatta put in order for me the books in which i wrote the accounts of his most christian majesty and my other employers now pagolo messieri having learned how to keep them from his brother went on doing this work for me in return for a liberal salary he appeared so far as i could judge to be a very honest lad for i noticed him to be devout and when i heard him sometimes muttering psalms and sometimes telling his beads i reckoned much upon his fiend virtue accordingly i called the fellow of heart and said to him pagolo my dearest brother you know what a good place you have with me and how you had formerly nothing to depend on besides you are a florentine i have also the greater confidence in you because i observe that you are pious and religious which is a thing that pleases me i beg you therefore to assist me for i cannot put the same trust in any of your companions so then i shall ask you to keep watch over two matters of the highest importance which might prove a source of much annoyance to me in the first place i want you to guard my property from being stolen and not touch it yourself in the next place you know that poor young girl katerina i keep her principally for my art's sake since i cannot do without a model but being a man also i have used her for my pleasures and it is possible that she may bear me a child now i do not want to maintain another man's bastards nor will i sit down under such an insult if any one of this house had the audacity to attempt anything of the sort and i were to become aware of it i verily believe that i should kill both her and him accordingly dear brother i entreat you to be my helper should you notice anything tell it me at once for i am sure to send her and her mother and her fellow to the gallows be you the first upon your watch against falling into this snare the rascal made a sign of the cross from his head to his feet and cried out o oh, blessed jesus god preserve me from ever thinking of such a thing in the first place i am not given to those evil ways in the next place do you imagine i am ignorant of your great benefits toward me when i heard these words which he uttered with all appearance of simplicity and affection for me i believe that matter stood precisely as he asserted chapter twenty nine two days after this conversation m matteo del nazaro took the occasion of some feast day to invite me and my workpeople to an entertainment in a garden he was an italian in the king's service and practised the same art as we did with remarkable ability i got myself in readiness and told pagolo that he might go abroad too and amuse himself with us the annoyances arising from that lawsuit being as i judged now settled down the young man replied in these words upon my word it will be a great mistake to leave the house so unprotected only look how much of gold silver and jewels you have here 
living as we do in a city of thieves, we ought to be upon our guard by day and night. I will spend my time in religious exercises, while I keep watch over the premises. Go then with mind at rest to take your pleasure and divert your spirits. Some other day another man will take my place as guardian here. Thinking that I could go of with a quiet mind, I took Pagolo, Ascanio, and Chiosia to the garden, where we spent a large portion of the day, agreeably, toward the middle of the afternoon. However, when it began to draw toward sundown, a suspicion came into my head, and I recollected the words which what traitor had spoken with his fiend simplicity. So I mounted my horse, and with two servants to attend me, I returned to the castle, where I all but caught Pagolo, and in that little wretch, Caterina, in flagrante, no sooner had I reached the place than that French bod, her mother screamed out, Pagolo, Caterina, here is the master. When I saw the pair advancing, overcome with fright, their clothes in disorder, not knowing what they said, nor like people in a trance, where they were going, it was only too easy to guess what they had been about. The sight drowned reason and rage, and I drew my sword resolved to kill them both. The man took to his heels, the girl flung herself upon her knees, and shrieked to heaven for mercy. In my first fury I wanted to strike at the male, but before I had time to catch him up, second thoughts arose which made me think it would be best for me to drive them both away together. I had so many acts of violence upon my hands that if I killed him I could hardly hope to save my life. I said then to Pagolo, had I seen with my own eyes, Grondel, what your behavior and appearance to force me to believe, I should have run you with this sword here ten times through the guts. Get out of my sight, and if you say a paternoster, let it be San Giuliano's. Then I drove the whole lot forth, mother and daughter, lambing into them, with fist and foot. They made their minds up to have the law of me, and consulted a Norman advocate who advised them to declare that I had used the girl after Italian fashion. What this meant, I need hardly explain. The man argued. At the very least, when this Italian hears what you are after, he will pay down several hundred ducats, knowing how great the danger is and how heavily that offense is punished in France. Upon this they were agreed. The accusation was brought against me, and I received a summons from the court. End of section six. Recording by Chris Caron, Ham Lake, Minnesota.